Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Hosted by Beth Bershock with expert advice from Jim Lang, Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert. Jim is also the author of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. To find out more about his book, his practice, Lang Financial Group, and how to secure Jim as a speaker for your next event, visit his website at retiresecure.com. Now, get ready to talk smart money. We are talking smart money. We have a wonderful guest tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Beth Bershock, along with Jim Lang, CPA attorney, best-selling author of the book, Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. That's actually two different editions of the book, Pay Ta- Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. And Jonathan Clements is with us today. And Jonathan was with the Wall Street Journal for 18 years as the top personal finance columnist. And I have to tell you, Jonathan, this is a huge compliment. Jim has been so excited about this show because he calls you his favorite financial writer. Well, the reason I was Jim's favorite financial writer was because I regularly had to call him up to get his expert (laughs) advice, and I'd put his name in print. You did. I think he was 25 times in the Wall Street Journal with you. Well, I wasn't counting, but I guess he was. (laughs) (laughs) He was counting. But honestly, Jim reads every financial piece, and he says you are his favorite financial writer. And since you left the Wall Street Journal, you authored something called The Little Book of Main Street Money, and Jim also says that that happens to be his favorite financial book that isn't specifically about IRAs and retirement plans. I guess that's a high compliment, Ben. <laughs> anyway, it's great to have, be on your show with you and Jim. Um, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, I love the opportunity to talk a little bit about my book. Well, we are so happy to have you. And Jim has honestly, not only has he, I think he's read the book a dozen times, he has <laughs> little notes all over the place, little thoughts that he had while he was going through the book. So I'm just going to let Jim get right into it. Well, First, I'm going to start, usually, you know, they say, well, the good part's coming up after the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to start with, with something that I thought was so good and something that, that was news to me. And that is the, the classic dilemma of if you own stocks and you own bonds. And normally long-term investments are stocks and um, shorter-term or safer investments are bonds. So... But if you're talking about should you have that in the taxable account or the IRA account, since the long-term investment tends to be stocks, you would think that that should go in the retirement plan. And the bonds who have a, um, let's say, the safety in the more short-term money, that should go in the after-tax dollars. But it's the exact opposite in terms of income tax efficiency. That is, bonds that are fully taxable in the taxable environment will throw off the highest tax. So from a tax standpoint, you want money in the um, IRA that would be normally taxable, like a bond, and you would want the more tax-efficient investments like a stock um, outside the IRA, but that's the exact opposite in terms of time frame. And you offer what to me was, was a wonderful solution. So I thought I'd maybe ask you about that and tell you, and ask you how you would handle the problem of if you have a portfolio of stocks and bonds and you want to have some money in the IRA or retirement plan and some money outside the IRA and retirement plan. Why am I not surprised, Jim, that you went straight for the issue involving taxes? <laughs> <laughs> you knew that was coming. Come on, Jonathan. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the... <laughs> 
Um, but um, it's a great question, and, and I think it really is um, an interesting issue because it's totally counterintuitive. If you talk to people and say, where should you put your stocks and where should you put your bonds, their immediate instinct is to take their bonds and put it in their regular taxable account because their feeling is, i got a financial emergency. I want to be able to sell a conservative investment to get cash because if I have my taxable account invested in stocks and I suddenly need emergency money and I go to sell the stocks, it could be a bad time in the stock market and I'd have to sell those stocks at depressed prices. And boy, I really don't want to be doing that. But there's a simple solution. Let's say, for Pose's argument, that you need $10,000 of emergency money. Maybe you need to replace the roof on your house, you've got a big medical bill, maybe you're between jobs and you need some cash to cover that period of time. And all you got sitting in your regular taxable account are stock funds. And those stock funds are way underwater. We're talking March 2009, the S&P 500 is 57% below its all-time high. It couldn't be a worse possible time to be selling stocks. And yet, you do just that. You sell $10,000 of stocks in your regular taxable account to get the cash that you desperately need. Of course, at this juncture, you have done something that is not smart, which is to sell stocks at depressed prices. To fix the damage that you've done, what you can do is immediately turn around in your retirement account and sell $10,000 of your bonds and move that money within the retirement account into stock funds thus recreating the stock exposure you, you previously had. In essence, what you're doing with all this financial finagling is you're getting the $10,000 that you desperately need, you're keeping your stock exposure the same, and you're reducing your bond exposure by $10,000, even though all you had sitting in your taxable account when you started was, 10, 000, was, was purely stock funds. And, and I, I love that so much. Um... Yeah, you're right. I went to straight the, the, let's call it the hard stuff. But actually, what was the biggest surprise to me of your book, and, it, you know, because most of the columns that, w- that, that we worked on together were hard-type things, you know, Roth IRAs and private annuities and wills and, and things like that, is that y- you have a much more philosophical orientation than I would have guessed. And... Um, you know your your seven key beliefs. I just thought I just thought were a great foundation for the rest of the book. And um, I guess I just didn't think of you as that as that good and um, so so philosophical in your big picture point of view. And maybe it would be appropriate to go over a few of the softer issues like like those seven key, key beliefs. Actually, I love these seven key beliefs because they are they apply to absolutely everyone. And first of all, Jonathan, before we get to those, is this a financial philosophy, these seven key beliefs that you developed over time, over your writing career with the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a financial journalist before, before I left the journal for a quarter century. And, you know, one of the... The intellectual progression that I went through is the you know, initial question you have for yourself is, well, okay, what's the smart way to invest? And you know, where I netted out was to think about, about things like, you know, should you be in actively managed mutual funds or should you be in index funds? I'm, I'm a clear fan of index funds. You know, thinking about things like controlling costs, controlling taxes, thinking about risk exposure. You start going through all this, and you know, the answers you discover are really relatively straightforward. And then you you look up from the textbooks and you look around the world and you say, well, why isn't anybody doing that? <laughs> why are people 
messing up so regularly. And you start to realize that while investing is simple, it isn't easy. People regularly mess up. I mean, this is why so many people end up using financial advisors. It's not because it's hard to figure out what to do with their money. The problem is it's hard to get yourself to do it. And thus, you know, my initial introduction into the whole sort of emotional, philosophical side of investing started with the literature and behavioral finance. You know, why we have these issues with overconfidence during bull markets, why we tend to panic and sell during bear markets, why we struggle to save and to hold down our spending. And from there, I sort of started to tap into other research. And in recent years, a particular area of interest for me has been so-called happiness research. Why is it the standard of living in the U.S. has increased so dramatically over the decades, and yet our reported level of happiness is no higher? And that, that's an issue that I think about every day, about why is it that all this money doesn't seem to buy folks a lot of happiness. Have you discovered the answer to that? Well, the literature points you in the right direction. I mean, one of the things that the academics talk about is this psychological phenomenon known as hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill. And the story goes something like this. You know, there's something you want. Maybe it's the new car. Maybe it's the bigger house. Maybe it's the next pay raise. Maybe it's the next promotion. So you finally get what you want. You get that pay raise. You know, you thought about it for months anxiously awaited it, and finally you got that pay raise, and you are thrilled. You are thrilled. And then a month later, you know, you're not so thrilled. <laughs> and then a month after that, you know, it's, it's just another paycheck. And then another month after that, and you're sitting around drumming your finger on your desk thinking, when am I going to get my next pay raise? We tend to adapt to these improvements in our life. You know, we really are, you know, true descendants of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. You know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors were able to survive and reproduce because they strove relentlessly to get ahead. They were never satisfied. They always were looking to, you know, find enough food, to find the shelter that they needed to make sure they lived until tomorrow. And in many ways, that is the people that we still are. We strive relentlessly to get ahead, and we are never satisfied. And, and, and one of the, your, I guess this is one of your key, key, key beliefs that, that kind of surprised me because the book is so full of, of just excellent sound wisdom in terms of saving and, and portfolio management and rebalancing. And the one that really surprised me is that you said, by experience rather than things. This is a this is a really interesting phenomenon, and imagine imagine you went out and you bought a new car, and it's the same cycle that we talked about with the pay raise. You know, initially you're thrilled. You show it off to your brother-in-law. You show it off to the neighbors. You drive it around town. <laughs> and three and months that's after so that, true. Yes. Three months after that, you get the first scratch. Two years after that, you get the first bender, and then two years after that the car breaks down. And suddenly, this thing that had been the source of such pride and such joy is sitting in the driveway, taunting you. <laughs> By contrast, imagine that you took the family to Paris. You go there for a week, the vacation is quickly over, and the money is gone. And yet, the trip to Paris may actually give a 
longer run boosts your happiness than the car. And the reason is this. The vacation to Paris doesn't sit in the driveway taunting you. It's over quickly, and all that you're left with is fond memories, and those fond memories will, if anything, grow fonder over time. Well, I, I just thought that that was, um, you know, ver- very interesting. And I, I actually liked your some of the some of the things. Are obviously, is a combination of philosophy and money. So one thing, w- one thing that you said that that I that I and a number of my younger clients are struggling with, is that you said something that is somewhat controversial and that people, parents tend to not want to do. But I just think it's so wise. You say to fund retirement before kids' college. And if you could expand on that, because in in my practice, I have a lot of clients who came from a home where they had their college taken care of um, by their parents, and they just assumed that they were going to do the same things. And sometimes that's great if you can afford it. But I have a lot of clients who frankly can't, and particularly... I think today there is a much higher cost per year of college and a much lower return when p- people get out of college. So it's going to be a real burden for a, um, uh, either a parent to finance or a student to finance college and then quickly pay it off after they're done. But I think that you seem to be more interested in long-term security. So if you could expand on that thought, I would appreciate it. Sure, yeah. There are a bunch of solid financial reasons to favor funding your own retirement over funding your child's college education. Um, Number one reason, the best savings and investment vehicle available to most folks is their 401k plan of their employer. I mean, you get what I call the investor's triple play. You get that upfront tax deduction, you get tax-deferred growth, and you may get some sort of matching contribution from your employer. There's no investment that's going to give you those three great attributes. So, you know, if you're not making the most of your 401k plan, at least putting in enough to get that full employer match, you're making a huge financial mistake. So that's one reason why you should be favoring the 401k plan over saving for your child's college education. Second, your time horizon with your retirement savings is likely to be longer than your time horizon with your kids' college education, and that means that you can take more risk in pursuit of higher returns. You know, you think about saving for a topless college education, you're looking ahead. The most you're going to have is 18 years. In, in terms of the financial markets, that's not a huge amount of time. You may be able to put some money into stocks initially, but within a decade, you're probably going to be thinking about throttling back your stock exposure and shifting more towards bonds. So you're going to end up getting lower returns than you would in your retirement account where you can afford to take more risk. And finally, you know, one of the things you think about is, you know, there's a lot of money available to help pay for college education. I mean, you can get uh, grants from the college you're going to. You can get student loans. By contrast, when it comes to retirement, you're going to have to pay cold, hard cash. With the exception of reverse mortgages, it's really difficult to borrow money to pay for retirement which is why you probably want to put your retirement first and think about saving for college as a secondary goal. You know, the the issue there, though, Jonathan, and I'm, I'm sure this would crop up in many, many families, is it's almost an emotional issue or an issue of pride. And some children, I honestly believe, fully expect to have their college paid for. It's almost like it's a given. 
And I think that's why it's really important to manage expectations. I mean, parents should sit down and consciously decide, you know, are they going to pay for the undergraduate education? If they're going to pay for the undergraduate education, do they draw the line there? Are they willing to pay for graduate school? Uh, they should think about, you know, are they going to pay, put some money towards the house down payment? Uh, what sort of wedding are they willing to fund? These are all big-ticket items, and you, know, you and your spouse should sit down and think about what it is that you're willing to do financially for your children and then communicate that to your kids. There is no right or wrong answer here. A lot of this will do have something, you know, come down to the, the values. I mean, if you really, really value education or you really, really value having that big, expensive wedding, then, yeah, you're going to make that a financial priority, and you're going to have to sacrifice somewhere else. But never forget that these are indeed trade-offs. You put a dollar towards one item, it's not available, available for something else. These are big trade-offs. You need to decide how you're going to make them, and then you need to communicate that to your kids so that they don't reach age 18, have this expectation that you're going to you know, fund the full ride at Harvard and discover that the money just isn't there. And how do you bring that up? You're, I would say at dinner. <laughs> you're, you're sitting around having meatloaf. By the way, uh, we're not paying for college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think early is, is better than later. The sooner you start talking about these issues with your kids, you know, the, the, the more their expectations will be in tune with your pocketbook, and, and they'll understand what, what the financial stakes are, and they'll make their own decisions accordingly. Well, the other, the other thing is I actually like to have the child have a little skin in the game. And specifically, my parents' philosophy is we will pay for undergraduate, and that's it. And when I was sponsored, if you will, I was an okay student. But then when I went to law school and it was on my own dime, all of a sudden, I did a heck of a lot better. I think that happens typically. Because it was my money, and I I cared about it a lot more. But, of course, one of the things that uh, if if we're not going to pay for our college um, education is that uh, either our, we or perhaps our children are going to have to go into debt. And one of the things that you said that I really loved is that you use the analogy of debt as a negative bond. And I thought that was such a, a almost a paradigm shift. And if you could expand on that thought, I would sure appreciate it, because I thought that was just a wonderful part of the book. When you think about a debt, what is it? Well, a debt is something that you have to pay interest on. You know, if you have a mortgage, say, and it's charging you 6% interest. Well, you know, that, that you're paying interest to somebody else. By contrast, when you go out and you buy a bond, somebody else is paying interest to you. It's, it's essentially the mirror opposite. So if you've got $1,000 to spare and you're a conservative investor and you're thinking about how to invest that thousand dollars, you've really got, you know, a couple of choices. I mean, you could you could go out and you could buy a bond that's going to pay you a particular interest, but you may discover that it's more worthwhile to take that thousand dollars and use it to pay down the the a thousand dollars of debt because that debt is costing you more than the interest you're likely to earn by buying a bond. And Jonathan and Jim, we are going to take a quick break. We will be right back with Jonathan Clements. He is the author of The Little Book of Main Street Money. It is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. 
The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Thank you for joining us tonight, talking more smart money. I'm Beth Bershock, along with Jim Lang, CPA attorney, best-selling author, and our guest tonight, Jonathan Clements, who is Jim's favorite financial writer. That is absolutely the truth. Jonathan was with the Wall Street Journal for 18 years as the, as the top personal finance columnist. He's been on Good Morning America, the Today Show, CNN. We are thrilled to have you with us tonight, Jonathan. And your book, The Little Book of Main Street Money, this is brand new. This just hit bookshelves in June. The book came out in June, yep, and it's available at good bookstores everywhere and a lot of bad ones as well. (laughs) (laughs) And there are some of those. Can you also get this on your website? Um, You can't get it through my personal website at jonathanclements.com, but you can certainly go to amazon.com, you know, barnesandnoble.com, any of those. I, I generally advise people to buy two copies because I think it gets better on the second read. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, Jim has read it many times. It's the little book of Main Street Money. It, honestly, he claims it's one of his favorite financial books. And there are so many points in this book that I know that Jim really wants to get to tonight. So do you want to start with pensions, Jim? Yeah. And, and actually, this is, this is one of my uh, the issues that come up in, in practice is I have um, a number. I have a lot of people in the education field, um, teachers, college professors, and also engineers and people who have traditional pension plans. And a lot of times, by nature, the the type of people that go into these professions tend to be a little bit conservative, particularly say engineers, and um, or teachers who didn't necessarily go into it for the money. And at, the, at retirement, they have some type of pension. That is, they have a certain income that will last um, their entire lives. And maybe it's adjusted for inflation, but maybe it's not. And then, in addition to the pension, they often have Social Security. And then there's often um, some investments also. And I've always maintained that if you have pensions and Social Security, that that's kind of like a bond. So if you have additional investments that you would have a different asset allocation mix that is leaning more towards stocks because your bond or your safe money is already covered. And I've hardly seen that anywhere. Nobody talks about that, and I've always brought it up to people, but there's been a certain natural reluctance of conservative people to say, what, you want me to put 80% of my money in in stocks uh, You know, at this stage of my life? And I'm saying, well, look, you have a pension that's paying you that's like a a $2 million um, bond. So the other money can safely go into stocks. You write about that. So I thought that was just terrific. And I thought perhaps if you could expand on the whole concept of what investments are appropriate, and you can have two people that have, in effect, identical investments and um, the same ages, but that their situations and their needs could be so much different, and that should be reflected in their choice of investments. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Jim. I mean, you totally nailed the issue. Uh, before the break, you know, we were talking about how you could look at as debt as being the equivalent of a negative bond because you're, you're paying interest to somebody else rather than them paying interest to you. Well, there, 
many aspects of our lives where we can think about things that are bond substitutes. For instance, you know, if you have a steady paycheck, you can think about that paycheck as being sort of like earning interest from a bond as a, as a consequence that frees you up to invest more heavily in stocks. I mean, this is the reason why academics have traditionally suggested that people who are younger invest heavily in stocks, and then as they approach retirement, they put more into bonds. The reason being, early in your career, you've got this huge amount of bond-like income from your paycheck coming towards you, and thus you would diversify that by buying stocks. Well, for most of us, when we reach retirement, you know, we'll have Social Security, which gives us some bond-like income, but that's pretty much it. So we tend to shift our portfolio more towards bonds and ratchet down the amount of stocks. But while that might be the right strategy for many of us, it's not going to be the right strategy for everybody. And the exception are just the people that you're talking about, Jim, the people who have traditional company pensions or traditional pensions from their local education authority or from the government that are going to give them a lot of fixed income during retirement. If you've got a lot of fixed income coming from a pension as well as Social Security, that is very much like getting interest from a bond. And thus, you can afford to take more risk with your portfolio by investing more heavily in stocks. Not only can you afford to take more risk, but actually it may be the, the safer thing to do to invest more heavily in stocks. Remember, if you've got a pension and it's fixed, over time the spending power of that pension is going to decline as inflation takes its toll. You know, Even at a modest inflation rate, say 3% a year, the spending power of a dollar is cut in half in just 23 years. That means that even if you've got plenty of income from your pension at age 65, by the time you get into your 80s, your standard of living may start to feel awfully uncomfortable. If you took the precaution of investing a reasonable amount in stocks, and those stocks did well over the intervening period, you would have the additional money to supplement your pension, and you wouldn't suffer that sort of squeeze to your standard of living that you might otherwise happen if you invested solely in bonds. Well, I, I think that that's a, a very good point. But let's say that you don't have one of these traditional pensions. And I think they're becoming rarer. Oh, I think th I think they are, and and let's also assume that um, you're you're you know you, yes you understand the value of the stock market, but you're looking at pretty low returns right now on bonds and and fixed income instruments. One of the things that you meant both mentioned in your book and um, that you've all that you also mentioned as a column, um, and it's a little bit out of character for you because usually you're not a great fan of of a lot of financial products but one that you seem to to like and one that I also like that very few people do is to purchase an immediate annuity where you in effect give the insurance company a chunk of money and they give you an income for either your life or perhaps the life of you and your spouse and there's of course variations with inflation protected annuities etc and I was wondering if you could talk about the concept, so so the, the people who don't have a pension, um, whether it would be appropriate to have a portion of their income come in in the form of an, an immediate annuity. Well, of course, I agree with you, Jim. I mean, the, there are really sort of two issues that kick in here and why people are reluctant to, uh, to buy that immediate fixed annuity. One is annuities generally have a bad reputation and in many cases that's well deserved but part of the problem is that you know the term annuity covers a variety of different investments there are tax deferred variable annuities tax deferred fixed annuities there are immediate variable annuities and there are immediate fixed annuities and we're just talking about one of those 
four different types of products. And, you know, an immediate fixed annuity is, is quite unlike the other ones that we're discussing here. An immediate fixed annuity is a very simple product. All you do is you hand over a chunk of money to the insurer, and then they give you a check every month for the rest of your life. You know, it doesn't involve, you know, these sort of big sales commissions. It doesn't involve hefty ongoing expenses. It's really a very, very simple product. Um, but then we bring, come to the second objection, and this is more of an emotional objection. People hate the idea of taking a chunk of money, turning it over to the insurance company, and knowing that if they walk out of the office and they get run over by a bus, the money they just invested is gone. Well, that's the issue, right? That is, that is the, the big emotional sticking point. Which, and, by the way, of course, is the same if you have a pension. It, it's true, and, and people are willing to work you know, 30, 40 years at one company in order to get that pension um, and make that sacrifice, and yet they're not willing to take a chunk of their own money and send it off to an insurance company in order to, to buy that monthly check from the insurer. And what, mean, what you're saying is the benefit in the long run is that you continue to get that check no matter what. Absolutely. I mean, what you're getting is effectively longevity insurance. If, if you start... If you live longer than the life expectancy tables suggest, if you start to outlive your other savings and you have that immediate fixed annuity, you at least know that you're going to get that check every month. Um, in, order, in, in order to sort of overcome the behavioral objections, I mean, there are a couple of different things you, you, know, you might think about doing. One, for instance, is you might buy that immediate fixed annuity over time. You could buy, put a chunk into an immediate fixed annuity when you first retire. You might wait a couple of years and then buy... Um, another immediate fixed annuity. That way you spread out some of that risk of, of dying early in retirement and seeing all your money lost to the insurance company. Um, the other thing you might think about doing is, is thinking about what's the sort of minimum amount of income that you need in order to be comfortable in retirement, not your sort of aspirational level of income, but just the, enough to cover the, cover the bills, the grocery bills, the utility bills, the property taxes, things like that. You could annuitize enough just to cover those bills so that you know you've got a base level established for retirement, and then you, know, you continue to invest the rest of the money more traditionally. That's another strategy that people might want to think about. So, so that the combination of your Social Security and the immediate annuity, and, and maybe if you have a small pension, the combination of those at least keeps a roof over your head, um, gas in the car, and food on the table. Exactly. I think that's uh, you know, a great strategy for a lot of people. And, and, you know, one of the things you have to realize is that, you know, there's a reason, a rational reason why immediate fixed annuities make sense. I mean, when you're dealing with a portfolio and trying to spend it down in retirement and you don't have anything like a pension or Social Security or immediate fixed annuity, you have to be extra, extra, extra cautious because you don't know how long you're going to live. And that means inevitably you're going to have to spend less than you would if you knew how long you were going to live because you don't want to risk outliving your savings. With the immediate fixed annuity, you, know, you pool that, some of that risk about living your savings by you know, joining with other people. Some of those people will die early in retirement. Some of them will live to ripe old age. But by pooling your risk with these other people, you can all collectively spend more than you otherwise would. And, and I'll tell you something that's kind of interesting in practice because, you know, I, I obviously have, um, well, I have, I have well over a thousand clients, and a lot of them, very few advisors out there are recommending 
immediate fixed annuities um, because if and and unfortunately many are uh, advise advising the the type of um, indexed annuities or variable annuities or annuities that frankly pay a much higher commission to the advisor and I'm actually licensed to sell a variety of these types of annuities but the only one I've ever sold um, is an immediate annuity because that's the only one that I really in my heart think is the right thing for the client but surprisingly few because not very many people uh, like the idea so I, I, I wanted to pick up on it here because I know that you have written about it in the Wall Street Journal and um, you wrote about it in your book and in my book I've actually I analyze it the math of it and talk about different break-even points that is if you live to a certain age um, that you're actually ahead of the game compared to say a CD or another fixed income investment and um, for people who are in good health I think it's it's really a great idea um, you know people who have longevity in their family and people who take care of themselves I just think that um, it's a great way to in effect replace what the old traditional pension was and, and I'm guessing Jim that when you show I, I'm, I'm sure you're showing clients that analysis and the break-even point what is the reaction that you typically get well the reaction that I get is they they express some interest they always laugh when I um, by the way if you if you do buy an annuity or if you have a pension plan um, but let's say in the case of when you buy an immediate annuity I would highly recommend that you follow the advice of the great French writer Voltaire. You might, you, you might not know. <laughs> we didn't know he was giving financial advice. <laughs> yeah, Voltaire actually has advice for people who um, buy immediate annuities and have pensions. And he says that I recommend that you go on living if not only to solely, I'm, I'm watching it, um, I, I advise you to go on living solely to enrage those who are paying your annuities. <laughs> there you go. Eventually, so. eventually they will be enraged. They collect long enough. And, and, and is this a strategy, Jim and Jonathan, that you would do at retirement? Is there any reason you would do this before you reach retirement? I don't think I would. What, what, what do you think, Jonathan? No, I don't think there's, um, there's any reason to do it before. But one thing you might want to think about doing um, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like along the lines of telling your kid ahead of time exactly what you're willing to pay for in terms of college, the house down payment, the wedding, and so on. You may want to commit as you approach retirement to using a certain sum to buy that immediate fixed annuity. To take a sum of money that's in your portfolio and say, you know, I can take $100,000 of savings at retirement and buy an immediate fixed annuity so that you've you start to sort of eliminate that from your mental ledger and you're more willing to commit the money when the time comes. It's sort of tougher if you've never thought about the subject before, reach age 65 and say, all right, now I'm going to take this $100,000 and send it off to the insurance company. It's a lot easier if you've thought about it ahead of time and made that financial commitment to yourself. Another thing that people may want to think about, and I mentioned this in my book, is to seriously think about delaying Social Security. If you look at the statistics, the vast majority of people claim Social Security at age 62, which is the earliest age at which you can claim it. And as a result, you know, they accept a permanent reduction in their benefits. If you're inclined to buy an immediate fixed annuity, a strategy that is equally good and arguably better is simply to delay claiming your Social Security benefit. 
by delaying your Social Security benefit, you'll get a larger monthly check. And not only will you get a larger monthly check, but that check is indexed to inflation. It, you'll get it for the rest of your life. It's at least partially tax-free. And if you were the family's main breadwinner and you predecease your spouse, your spouse will get your benefit as a survivor benefit. I think that the reason some people don't delay Social Security, because I've had this discussion with some of my own friends and relatives, is because they're afraid it's going to run out, so they think they're just going to start taking it now anyway. If you can find a politician who is willing to stick his or her neck out and say that they are going to cut Social Security benefits for people age 60 or older, I can tell you a politician who will not get reelected. <laughs> well, I, I, I would agree with that. The other, the other thing, the natural objection to an immediate annuity, which I don't think is founded, is, well, I'm afraid that the insurance company is going to go belly up and that I'm going to give them this, this chunk of money um, for the fixed annuity, but then they're going to go bankrupt. And I think that, that people sometimes, I'm not going to say that that's, mathematically a zero risk but most states have some type of guarantee funds and to my knowledge that even the even the companies that have had financial difficulty some other companies would in effect buy those contracts to keep the system going Um, but I don't know if you have encountered that objection also you know I have indeed encountered that objection but again that may be one of the reasons to buy your immediate fixed annuity income on the installment program to buy, you know, put some small chunk in upon reaching retirement, another small chunk a couple of years later, and then another small chunk a couple of years after that. By doing so, you could purchase from a variety of insurers, and thus you could hedge the risk that any one insurer gets into financial trouble. And, and, and by the way, we, we have also, we have some software, and we analyze the uh, when you should take Social Security. And interestingly enough, it's sometimes a little bit different for men and women and for survivor options, but we find that most people are taking it um, earlier than they should. And the other problem with taking it too early or looked at another way, another opportunity of delaying it, and Beth, how long has it been since we talked about Roth IRA conversions? Well, we haven't gone through this. You know, we're into this show (laughs) for 40 minutes, and we still haven't mentioned it, so why don't you just go ahead? (laughs) Roth Um, IRA conversions. Is the other thing about doing... um, delaying Social Security, is that that will give you an opportunity to have a low-income year for a Roth IRA conversion. So, and and right now, particularly, um, I see 2009 and 2010 as, you know, the classic um, years for Roth IRA conversions. 2009, because seniors don't have a minimum required distribution this year, their incomes are going to be way down. 2010, because there's no income limitation on making a Roth IRA conversion. So that would be, let's say, even another reason to delay Social Security because one of the downsides of the Roth IRA conversion is it might increase your taxability on Social Security. No, you're absolutely right, Jim. In fact, I remember that we worked on a story together on this very topic when I was at the Wall Street Journal. Um, A lot of people get into their 60s. They quit the workforce. Uh, they don't, haven't yet claimed Social Security. You know, they, the only income that they have is the taxable interest kicked off the uh, the bonds in their regular taxable account and any you know mutual fund distributions they're getting from their stock funds. And there's a great chance that they could be paying little or no income taxes. And you talk to them, and it's like, 
this is great. After all these years of sending off a fat check to Uncle Sam every year, I'm having these tax-free years. But if you find yourself in that situation, that is a wasted opportunity because while you may be paying no income taxes today, you may be setting yourself up for income, big income tax bills down the road once you claim Social Security and once you start drawing down those retirement accounts. If you get into retirement and you find yourself in one of those low-income years where you're paying little or no income taxes, this is a great opportunity to convert part of your IRA to a Roth, pay the income taxes on that conversion, but potentially pay income taxes at just 10 or 15 percent. I, I think it, it is a, a great opportunity. I know that, that um, you know, when I was reading your, your book, I was thinking, you know, this this book is a combination of timely because right now people are very concerned about money, but it also I think is very classic. I think that I could pick this book up in five or ten years from now and that, that you know, probably most or all of it would be very um, appropriate where that might not be quite the case with my book, for example, where I'm aggressively recommending um, Roth IRAs and Roth IRA conversions. But I thought that you had a certain, um, let's say, timeless feature, if you will. So, And the book is called The Little Book of Main Street Money by Jonathan Clements. It just came out in June, available on Amazon.com and, of course, your local bookstore. And we are going to take a quick break and be back again with Jonathan Clements, The Little Book of Main Street Money. It is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Talking smart money, I'm Beth Bershock along with Jim Lang and our guest tonight, Jonathan Clements, who for 18 years was with the Wall Street Journal and has recently authored The Little Book of Main Street Money. It just hit bookshelves in June. It, it is just, honestly, Jonathan, a wonderful book because Jim mentioned this right before the break where he said he thinks you'll be able to pick this book up in five years and it will still make complete sense. And I think it's because you just, you have these timeless philosophies about finances. It's more of a financial philosophy than anything else. And Jim has, has, has so many great points in this book, but I know that one you wanted to touch on, Jim, before we ran out of time was asset allocation. Well, I mean, everybody has discussions of asset allocation and, and what is appropriate based on age and risk tolerance and things like that. But you actually made two points that I thought were somewhat unique, and you, I don't see that very often. And the first point that you mentioned was that the percentages of the different allocations, such as stocks and bonds and different types of um, bonds and bond funds, etc., that the allocation that you choose is less important than your willingness to stick with whatever you choose. And I thought that that was just so good, and I thought maybe if you could expand on that thought and tell our listeners why it is so important that they not just, you know, change their strategies every time there is a bear or bull market. If you talk to some financial planners, they'll sit there and they will, you know, create these finely tuned portfolios with, you know, 3% real estate investment trust and 10% small cap value and, 
X percent in emerging markets and developed foreign markets and so on and so on. And that is great, but those percentages are all but useless if somebody's not willing to stick with them. I mean, the fact is, and we've just had the object lesson in risk tolerance, the fact is, if you can't stick with a portfolio during the rough parts of the market cycle, then that is not a good portfolio. You know, when when the S&P 500 is down 57% and you made the mistake of opening up your mutual fund statement and seeing how much you lost. <laughs> Better not to open it. <laughs> and you panic and sell, it doesn't matter how carefully constructed that portfolio is. That portfolio is not the right portfolio to, for you. What people need to figure out is what portfolio can they live with through good times and bad. And this is actually a great, great, great moment to think about it because no matter how brave you thought you were in the late 1990s during the internet stock bubble, no matter how brave you thought you were in early 2007 when we were five years into the rebound from the 2000 to 2002 bear market, what really counts is how brave you were in March 2009 when the S&P 500 had been more than cut in half, because that tells you how much risk you can truly tolerate. And as we go forward from here, and, you know, my suspicion is, you know, the markets will recover, and, you know, we'll get eventually into another bull market, and technically we're already there, never, ever forget how you felt in March 2009 when the market had been more than cut in half, and everybody thought that we were on the verge of the economic apocalypse because that information is hugely useful because it tells you what your true tolerance for risk is. Yeah, I, I liked when you said for, you know, the questionnaires that that uh, people have both uh, for the financial advisors and on the Internet talking about risk tolerance aren't nearly as important as how did you behave in March. And one of the funny things is when um, – Back in early 2007, when I was still at the Journal, I was getting the emails that I also got in late 1999 and early 2000, which were, what's wrong with a 100% stock portfolio? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's wrong with a 100% stock portfolio? Nothing if you've got a 50-year time horizon and you never look at those mutual fund statements. But for those of us who are human and have this tendency to collect the mail from the mailbox, 100% stock portfolio is awfully tough to live with. And I think that the, that ties in, Jonathan, to one of your key beliefs that I just absolutely love from this book, The Little Book of Main Street Money, which is simplicity is one of the great financial virtues. You were just talking about complicated portfolios and continuing to uh, tweak them and adjust them. But I love that, that simplicity, you don't really need to know all of this information. Simplicity is really one of the great financial virtues. People assume the sophisticated is somehow better, that if they can understand all these fancy Wall Street terms and if they own, you know, sophisticated investments like, you know, hedge funds and they're invested in venture capital and so on, that somehow they're going to get better returns. Don't count on it. Most people can build great portfolios for themselves you know, with a handful of low-cost mutual funds that are spread across a variety of markets. If you understand what you own, you are much less likely to be unpleasantly surprised. 
and you're much more likely to stick with those investments at times of market turmoil because you truly understand what you own and that knowledge makes you a more tenacious investor. So stop lusting after your invest your neighbor's supposedly more sophisticated portfolio. Stick with the simple stuff and you'll likely do far better. On the other hand, you, you certainly want to do things that you can control, um, such as tax efficiency and tax-free growth, like Roth, Roth IRA conversion. By the way, since he just dropped that in, in the, in <laughs> before we wrap up in the next few minutes, we do have a couple of workshops coming up that are free, and I'm going to be giving you some information on that that are all about Roth IRAs and the tax law change coming up in 2010. But I think you're right, Jim. You you want to be you want to take a look at the things that you can control. And and Jonathan, if I'm not mistaken, that is one of your seven key beliefs. Absolutely. Everybody focuses on short-term performance, the short-term performance of individual stocks, the short-term performance of market sectors, the short-term performance of particular stock funds. But the fact is, we cannot control the market's short-term performance. So instead, think about the things that you can control. How much you save and spend, how much you incur in investment costs, what the size of your investment tax bill is, and maybe most important, the amount of risk that you take. Control risk, control savings, control costs, control your tax bill. If you control those things, good things will likely happen. Jim, any last-minute things you want to you wanna get in from Jonathan's book, The Little Book of Main Street Money? Jim wrote so many notes, I don't think he got to them all in this hour. No, I didn't get to quite a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 one, the one other thought that I, that I did have, though, and this is, this is probably closer to your uh, um, the softer side, is that uh, you said that you say that commuting is terrible for happiness, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was great. And, and it's I, absolutely true. Um, one of the things that people do all the time is move you know, far out of the city to distant suburbs so they can have these huge homes, and they imagine that thanks to the bigger home, they're going to be happier. With that bigger home comes the longer commute. And the problem with commuting is that it's one of those things that you cannot control. It brings with it great uncertainty. You never know how late the trains are going to be. You never know how bad the traffic is going to be. And we hate uncertainty, and uncertainty causes great unhappiness. So if you can avoid the long commute, do it. And you live in New York, right, Jonathan? Well, actually, I work in New York, and I live in New Jersey, and I have a long commute. I was going to just say, (laughs) yeah, because some people that work in New York have incredibly long commutes. Which is why... One, I commute by train. Okay. And two, I always have masses of reading material with me. <laughs> okay. For a second there, I thought you weren't taking your advice, your own advice. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called The Little Book of Main Street Money. And, Jonathan, give your website, because your, your website, you can't purchase the book on the website, but you have a lot of the general pieces of information from the book on the website, and I found it really, really helpful and fascinating. So what is your personal website? To find out. Uh, more about me, find out more about my book, go to jonathanclements.com. There you'll, uh, you'll find a bio, and you'll also find the introduction to the book so you can learn a little bit more about it before you rush off and uh, pay your thirteen ninety five. <laughs> is that what it is, thirteen ninety five? Uh, I think that's the discount on Amazon, but to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, because that, that's an awesome price for this book. Any quick last-minute tips here, Jonathan, before we wrap up? I just think that this is a 
great moment for Americans to return to financial responsibility. We've started to see that. The savings rate has picked up this year. Americans are starting to pay down their consumer debt. Um, I think those are both wonderful trends. And for those who are starting to get a better handle on their finances, I think this is a great time to be an investor. I mean, we have, even after the huge rally of recent months, we still have a market that's, you know, a third below where it was. You know, this is a good time to be an investor. So if you're sitting there saying, oh, I haven't done enough saving for retirement, you know, I wish I could get started, well, start today. It's a good time to be an investor. Hey, the information has been wonderful, Jonathan. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. The book, again, is The Little Book of Main Street Money, and you can check it out on Amazon.com. Thank you again, Jonathan. It's my pleasure, Beth. Hey, we, I do want to point out we have two workshops coming up this fall, and Jim was just mentioning as a strategy Roth IRAs, Roth IRA conversions. Jim, we are getting very close to the big tax law change in 2010. It's January 1st. And the, the opportunities for both 2009, where you have the no minimum required distribution for seniors and the for high income earners in 2010 um, combined with the fact that our market is hopefully low and our taxes are low relative to where they're going to be this truly is a historic time for Roth IRAs and Roth IRA conversions. And we cover both in the workshop. It, and it's coming up. We have two of them. One is October 24th. This is a Saturday from 9.30 to 11.30 in the morning or 1 to 3 in the afternoon. We're going to be in Monroeville that day. It's at the Holiday Inn on Mossside Boulevard. We are going to be doing this again on Saturday, November 21st. Same times. And that time we're going to be back up in Cran the Cranberry area at Four Points by Sheridan in Mars for... To RSVP, and I would do that because we just held one a couple of weeks ago and we were at capacity. Call 1-800-748-1571. It's 1-800-748-1571. Again, the next one is Saturday, October 24th. It's free. You also get a free copy of the book, Retire Secure. And you can check out more information on our website, which is www.retiresecure.com. You can you can check out the information, the audio from the radio shows and the upcoming workshops. And in two weeks, we're going to be back here with Charlie Smith from Fort Pitt Capital Group. So be sure to join us then as well. It is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Portions of the audio that you just heard will be posted online at retiresecure.com. You can also find a list of upcoming events and topics at RetireSecure.com. To seek Jim's advice personally or to speak to a member of his dedicated staff at Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, call 412-521-2732. Join us again in two weeks when we talk more smart money.